afternoon, everyone. I, uh, I'm going to kick things off because we're the last panel of the day, and I know some people are excited to, uh, to take part in the next stage of events and, and grab a cocktail. But I was promised, and I think uh, we can see it with the room, anytime we bring up the words either cryptocurrency or blockchain, especially when you put them together, you fill an audience pretty quickly. And uh, I think that's what we have here today. Now, I'm joined by very special guests because even though I'm coming in from the New York Stock Exchange, I think we're better served by hearing from individuals who are actually working every single day in this space. And so I'm joined uh, by a number of gentlemen. I'd, uh, you know, I'll just do a quick intro if that's okay. Uh, Jan Van Eck, uh, head of, of Van Eck at the, at the end. Uh, and then Matt Markowitz is joining us from Innovator. We have Michael Sonnenschein from, uh, from the Grayscale Group and uh, Christian Magoon uh, from Amplify. I think everyone here is either CEO or C-suite, so you're talking to the heads of their businesses and heads of state. I want to get right into it so we don't waste time because I can see people are probably already ready to ask their questions. Um, I'm going to go with Michael if I could. If we could just start out, level the playing field. Um, tell us what, what is a cryptocurrency? First of all, thanks for having me. And before I answer your question, Doug, can the audience just raise your hand if you personally have previously or currently owned a cryptocurrency? You know, every time I do this, the crowds are getting friendlier and friendlier. This is good. Okay. Um, so a, a cryptocurrency, and I think the one that's probably most relevant to speak about today is Bitcoin. Uh, Bitcoin is a completely decentralized, non-fiat, non-physical asset. Um, that was born out of a white paper created in 2008. The goal was to create a completely frictionless peer-to-peer -peer currency that would be void of any kind of government intervention and would allow for frictionless payments in a way that value could, for the first time, move around the world seamlessly without really transaction fees, very, very efficiently, and, um, and again, from peer-to-peer -peer without having to rely on a trusted intermediary. Um, this currency is probably one of the most innovative things that I think we will see in our lifetimes. Um, it is finite, it is capped at 21 million units that will ever be created of it. Um, it is governed through a completely decentralized process. There are computers all over the world that participate in confirming transactions and keeping records of who owns what. And this has exploded in the last 10 years and has now pervaded pretty much every single industry under the sun. Um, personally, for me, um, Grayscale Investments, we're a New York City-based asset management business. Uh, we manage about $2 billion, and we also operate the first publicly quoted Bitcoin vehicle in the United States called Bitcoin Investment Trust. Um, it's often kind of seen as the, the kind of the GLD of Bitcoin. And so we're giving investors the ability to participate and speculate on Bitcoin through the purchase of a security, much the same way an investor would do so uh, with GLD trying to get an exposure to gold. And did anyone want to jump in? I saw some eyebrows twitch. No. So there's no twitching. I would just, uh, I, I try to translate it into investment terms, and I break the universe into three different um, types of things. One is a store of value. The second is, I'll call it an enabling technology. And the third is an actual use, like something you would use, like to drive a car or to order a taxi. And I call Bitcoin a store of value. Ethereum is, uh, with its protocols, is an enabling database kind of technology. And then uh, there are a lot of coins that have particular uses. So I think this, the role they play will track, ultimately, long-term, the, the value that they will create for investors or not. So 
we see the headlines almost every single day. I remember waking up this morning and seeing a headline, uh, somebody called for Bitcoin 250,000. The, the media is there, we know that, but I think the question many of us often say is, well, what's the use case, if you will? And and I know everyone probably has uh, some ideas. Could I ask Matt, maybe you to kick off and then we'll, we'll go around the panel for the actual use case of where we think, whether it's institutions or others, to use cryptocurrencies? Uh, sure, so maybe it's not institutional um, in the sense that um, you know investors are looking at it, but from a institutional use application, you know, one of the areas that's interesting is in the digital advertising space, um, particularly for bat banner ads and trying to enable um, people to be more effective with their content. So you have users and publishers who actually could uh, get paid for um, page views or what they're producing, and um, that can all be tokenized. So again, I'll use the, the the term cryptocurrency and token interchangeably, and I think that they kind of need to be. Um, so that's an interesting space that that's yet to develop. And then, of course, from the payment perspective, everyone's probably most familiar with with that and how a lot of merchants are accepting, you know, globally Bitcoin as payment for for goods and services. Maybe Christian, could you expand a little bit on that question? And this might be also an opportunity to introduce uh, blockchain because I, th I think we're starting to go in that direction. Yeah, that's right. So um, we've taken a little bit of a different approach at Amplify, at least initially, and we've actually concentrated um, our efforts in creating an ETF that focuses on companies that are highly engaged in blockchain technology. So blockchain technology is a technology just like the internet. Cryptocurrencies is an application being built on blockchain technology. Much like uh, the internet technology in the early days, many people thought, oh, the internet is a website, uh, it's, it's, it's an email. Well, that's true, it's built on internet technology, but many other applications uh, were built on internet technology, social media, streaming, etc. So initially, the first application that most people have heard about with blockchain technology is cryptocurrencies, with Bitcoin being the first and largest by market cap. Um, there are many other uses. Uh, Matt just talked a little bit about it. Um, you know, another another use is, uh, uh, believe it or not, food safety. So uh, there's a food safety blockchain that's out in the marketplace today with uh, Walmart participating as well as IBM. IBM is a business that's creating blockchain as a service. We've heard of SAAS, software as a service. There's a new industry emerging, blockchain as a service, BAAS. And this blockchain essentially tracks food from farm to store, for example, and allows companies to monitor food safety. So a real world example, uh, there was a bad batch of mangoes in a Walmart store and they decided to use their process to track down where the farm was. And that farm uh, ended up being in South America. It took about six and a half days to use their computers. They decided to use the IBM blockchain for food safety in parallel. It took 2.5 seconds to find out that information. So we believe that blockchain uh, is going to be transformative, make businesses more efficient. It really is more secure than um, current centralized data. Centralized data systems can be attacked at one spot. They can. Uh, the, all the data of the whole network can be taken from one spot, AKA Facebook. When you have a distri distributed data system that's decentralized, you essentially have to attack all those points at the same time thousands of nodes potentially to get that, that information. In addition, not having that centralized data allows for speed, more uh, uh, quicker transactions, uh, less costly. And I think that's part of the success of, of what Bitcoin has brought to the table. Um, it's, a, it's a store of value.
value and it's allowed money to be decentralized and to have less friction and I think that's why it's going to be that store of value but there's many other applications coming forward uh, besides uh, just cryptocurrencies. Yeah, I, th I think it's interesting, right, because now we've changed the conversation. It's not just, oh, I have a way to pay you. Uh, you're talking about, you know, six weeks worth of, of data, you know, uh, analytics to, to, to seconds. Maybe, Jan, could you, could you also expand a little bit in what you're seeing from your side on other uses in the way in which, you know, some of these distributed ledger systems are working or other areas that are opportune? Well, I think the, the most established and most successful is actually Bitcoin as a store of value. And um, the reason our firm got involved because we have history with gold is that it's sort of a new form of, di I'll call it digital gold. And the way I would frame it for you is uh, gold does well when there's inflation or devaluation of the currency and the dollar has been so relatively strong during the last couple of decades, it's hard to imagine. But if, uh, if we had an inflationary bout, I would ask you what's gonna perform better, gold or Bitcoin? What would, you rather, what would you rather own? And I think that's the investment proposition of Bitcoin that's already well established and why investors are all, of all types are investing in Michael's fund today because they want that kind of exposure. I think the blockchain concept is becoming extremely muddled. Um, I think there are a lot of interesting concepts that people talk about and it, you, really, you really, let me, I, I try to strip away some of them. So one of them is cryptography and keeping data really, really secure. And that's an that's a important part of the functioning of Bitcoin. But the protection of data is something that we all need, right? 800 million identifications have been stolen because people have gotten into centralized databases. You know, but at VanEck, we're slowly, you know, encrypting all of our data. And over time, maybe, you know, that problem gets solved. There's another concept of, hey, I wanna own my own data, and after Facebook is reselling all our personal data, I can totally identify with that, and I think that will be an enduring kind of need. The other is sort of the, the supply chain, right? Sharing that information, but that's just sharing information. You know, I'm kind of okay if IBM does that for extremely, almost for free. I don't care if they do it, right? If they do it efficiently. It doesn't have to be done through peer-to-peer. Um, and, and maybe just to confuse the situation even more, if you take a look at how people are investing in Bitcoin, I would almost argue that it itself is not pure peer-to-peer. -peer. So most of you are familiar with Coinbase, which is the largest investor platform. I'll call it an on-ramp onto, onto the Bitcoin network. So 13 million plus accounts. And they do most of their trading off-chain, right? They're trading within, with other Coinbase customers. It's itself an exchange. And then it's only at the end of the day or whenever Coinbase decides to publish the sum total of those trades and move Bitcoin actually on, on, the, uh, on the network that it actually uses it. So a lot of the activity is off-chain and then some is just on-chain. So it's a, it'll be a very combination-oriented world, I guess is what I'm saying. Fascinating points there, right? One is you've got Coinbase that now has as many accounts, if not more, than, than E-Trade. Uh, and the second comment that I'll make, Jan, is you're, you talked a lot about being uh, the efficiency of trading in one area and then effectively netting, which sounds a lot like the ETF industry, which I believe this is a partial ETF conference with closed-end funds. So uh, thank you for bringing it back home. Do others on the panel want to talk about other places that you're seeing blockchain, uh, you know, making an impact that's beyond maybe just a currency trade. 
Yeah, sure. So um, I'll take that. So Grayscale Investments is um, a wholly owned subsidiary of a firm called Digital Currency Group based here in New York. Um, we are the largest and most active venture capitalist in the broadly defined digital currency um, blockchain ecosystem. Uh, we've now invested in 125 digital currency related businesses in 30 countries around the world. Um, these are companies that are building on top of blockchain technology or using digital currency, everything from identity management solutions to cross-border payments and remittances to building exchanges and wallets and custody solutions. We have companies that are building blockchain surveillance and monitoring solutions. Um, we have companies working on rights and royalties management um, using blockchain technology. The, the message to deliver to, to this audience is that it is so early in the life cycle and the proliferation of this technology that we honestly have not yet identified what the killer use case is or what the killer use case is going to be. Um, when we saw the advent of the internet, um, there was a lot of skepticism. What do I need an internet for? I have the library down the street and you know, why do I need to plug into a broadly, you know, global decentralized internet? Um, you know, I'm gonna create my own ISP and you know, obviously we have this great internet with tons of information. But some of these application layers are being built in a way that is really transformative. The example that Matt brought up is actually already a reality. The same developers who built a web browser called um, Mozilla Firefox, which many of you have probably used before, have started a new web browser called Brave. What Brave does is allows users to look at advertisements and in, in, in exchange for lending their eyeballs to the things that they see, they actually can receive digital currency rewards in the form of Bitcoin. And then as they encounter paywalls, as they scour the internet, that digital currency can then be redeployed to get past those paywalls. And so to Matt's point, you have this really fantastic new way to monetize content in a micropayment format that would never otherwise be possible using a credit card, a Venmo, an American Express, whatever it may be. Um, I will say though that as excited as I am to hear about, you know, mango, you know, fruit poisoning going on and, and being able to track it very quickly, um, and that's a definitely an additive thing and something that is, is certainly going to help, you know, keep people healthy and save lives. Um, the killer use case that keeps me as excited as I am about this industry um, is financial inclusion. Um, and it's part of the dialogue that does not get brought up that much because the popular press talks about digital currency, its volatility, its price movement, who's getting involved, when are institutions coming into it, et cetera. But everybody in this room is banked. You all have bank accounts, you all have credit cards, you've all taken loans before, um, you have the ability to store wealth and pass it to your children, et cetera. Half, more than half the world's adult population does not have the ability to do that. And so when you kind of take off this developed world um, financial services access um, that we all enjoy and more than likely kind of take for granted, um, you have to understand how unbelievably impactful the introduction of digital currencies can be in a geography where you either don't have financial services access or it's further constrained because you live under a dictator or a government that is intervening in your currency, manipulating interest rates, and you are buying real assets um, to protect your purchasing power. And there are currency crises going on all over the world at the moment, places like Argentina, Nicaragua, the list goes on. 
And so if you look at what happened with cell phones, where in a lot of these same geographies, there was never the capital or the infrastructure to have landlines, but cell phone technology came along, towers popped up, and suddenly everyone was communicating and part of that dialogue, we see a very similar proliferation um, with digital currencies where the unbanked can become banked because all you need in order to use Bitcoin and other digital currencies and send them peer to peer, whether it's barter or storing wealth or financing a business or financing an education is a very, very simple feature phone because you can literally SMS, send a text message with Bitcoin from one person to another. And so my thing, the thing that I'm most excited about is having this technology and the introduction of this be the springboard to financial inclusion. Okay, so I heard, I heard Michael say that, that this is the, the next round of, of the internet. Um, I was going to maybe come to, to, to Matt and Christian and, and then Jan if you have following comments, but as providers of uh, you know, products that, that investors want to invest in, you know, I'm hearing Michael say, hey, this is the next big investment opportunity of your lifetime. Uh, how are you thinking then about putting it into a wrapper where people can say, okay, I, I want to invest in those companies that, doing, that do it best? Um, into companies that are doing it? Yeah, or? sorry, I'm gonna oh, let sorry. these guys grab sorry. the stage if that's okay. Yeah, yeah so I mean, um, I think Grayscale has some amazing products and, and um, you know, we have a bit of a different wrapper because we're in the ETF space. And certainly if you've read any ETF coverage about uh, cryptocurrencies, it, uh, the SEC hasn't been favorable about us getting into uh, doing ETFs that uh, have direct exposure. And I think Grayscale has even uh, pursued some efforts there. and. Um, they've been able to list uh, products in a different wrapper than an ETF. Uh, so, you know, from our standpoint, our pivot was to invest in companies that are either leading uh, in private investment in companies in technology related to blockchain, receive revenue from blockchain today uh, at related activities, or are, are involved with multiple research consortiums. So just really briefly, um, you know, a company that receives revenue from blockchain related business activities today could be somebody like GMO Internet or SBI or Digital Garage, companies that are actually operating cryptocurrencies exchanges in Japan and other countries. They also have mining operations. They're very sensitive and that's really what their focus is uh, when it comes to blockchain. There's other companies that uh, receive revenue from blockchain. A lot of these companies are chip manufacturers. Uh, uh, NVIDIA or Taiwan Semiconductor would be a great example. Taiwan Semiconductor just reported earnings, their biggest source of growth was selling GPUs to people mining on the, on the blockchain, essentially confirming uh, transactions. Um, and, and then there's also other companies that are heavily involved in research. So if you've seen an IBM ad recently or heard any of their conference calls, it's all about blockchain as a service. So we're taking uh, essentially a pick and axe approach, uh, trying to own the companies in, in that space that are receiving revenue and should uh, we think have an advantage going forward. We'd love to do uh, physical uh, crypto in the ETF structure, but currently it's not allowed, but it's allowed us to have a, a unique space with our block ETF. Much like Christian, we take at Innovation Shares a, a similar approach uh, in that we own a portfolio of stocks that have exposure to blockchain technology. And as Michael mentioned, we're still very early stages in um, how this technology is going to be used. So, you know, we would expect the portfolio and you know, we're a little bit different from uh, Christian's fund in that we have a, an index that we've built and um, has a, you know, it's passively managed. And 
from that standpoint, the index may look different in a year to two years than it does now, um, but we feel uh, that we've identified the companies that are the, the players right now and the ones that will you know, be around at least for the next you know, several years um, in many of the areas that, that Christian mentioned. Um, but we like sort of, uh, as, as Jan discussed, um, the logistics space and supply chain is just a, an area for massive uh, disruption. And the companies that are using blockchain technology to help increase their, their operational efficiencies, like FedEx or UPS, for instance, are going to be, um, you know, viewed as probably, you know, a little more superior to their peers who aren't using this technology. So, uh, thank you, gentlemen, for talking about products that that exist today and how you you went about tackling them. Jan, I was hoping you could share because there's a lot of product developers in the room as well as investors. Um, your experience going down the actual road of building a cryptocurrency fund, and then Michael, you're not off the hook because I want to come back into the way that it, um, your product works. Well, I haven't I haven't done it, so um, I'm happy to talk about the issues that we face, right? And these are the ones that are queued up by the SEC. So first of all, they're they're concerned the market structure is completely unregulated, right? The crypto world started really all the way. Uh, it, it was it, it was beautiful from it was an absolute nightmare, I should say, from a regulatory perspective, right? Because the the interaction with the public was unregulated, the exchanges were unregulated, people were starting to come up with products that were unregulated that didn't have custodians. I mean, it was almost the perfect. Uh, nightmare for a regulator and you know what I've been saying is 2018 is the world is the year when regulation comes into the, the crypto space whether the crypto world likes it or not um, so the concerns from a from a product perspective reflect that un, ungoverned um, market structure one is the liquidity of the of the underlying coins that's obvious um, one is the pricing, what is the value? So there's no consolidated tape, there's New York Stock Exchange to look at. So there are a number of people that have been scraping prices from all the underlying exchanges. We've done that uh, and we've published our own indices. Uh, but there's other issues around that, um, which is there's a lot of trading over the counter of crypto. So if you want to trade 10 or 20 million and if you have a big ETF, so how, what's the real price? It's not necessarily the Coinbase price. So that's, uh, that's something that's being worked out in the industry and that we're focusing on. And the last one is custody. No big bank has signed up to custody uh, digital assets. And so uh, there's a lot of work in the area and, and we're moving towards it, but n none of those problems are completely solved, although I think they're all solvable. The, um, a couple of interesting points. So at the New York Stock Exchange, working with Jan and others uh, around trying to file for products, the SEC ended up publishing effective, effectively a, a letter to the industry that said, hey, these are all the things you have to tackle in order for us to, to consider approving products. So if you're not familiar with that letter, it, it's, a, it's a guideline and a blueprint for not just everyone up on stage, but each one of you in the audience to think about as you move forward. Uh, Michael, you do have a product that exists. Mm -hmm. um, could you help us understand that structure? Because I don't think everyone is, is as familiar with the way in which the trust structure operates. Sure. So, uh, so we operate eight unique investment funds. Um, we have seven passive single currency vehicles. Um, they are trust structures. So they're Delaware Grantor Trust. They're identical to the Spider Gold ETF, GLD. Um, they solely and passively hold the digital currency for which they're named. So we have a fund for Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, Ethereum, Ethereum Classic, Litecoin, um, 
Ripple and Zcash. And so the idea is to give investors the ability to purchase shares of a trust. So they are buying a security with a QCIP that's audited, um, that has a four o'clock net asset value price that is derived from a third party index provider that has third party custodianship, that has Davis Polk as counsel and EY as the tax preparer, et cetera. And each of these products, um, when they get to their first birthday, is able to have a public quotation on the OTCQX market, um, which is the top tier of the OTC market and where many ADRs trade in the US. And so our Bitcoin vehicle, GBTC, has been quoted on the OTCQX since May of 2015. Um, our second product began quotation last week, our Ethereum Classic product. And so if you're an accredited investor, you can buy shares of the funds um, at the daily net asset value directly from us, although you must hold the shares for a year before you can resell them into the public market under the Rule 144 seasoning period. Um, the, um, the product structure isn't perfect, though, because these products trade at a significant premium publicly to their net asset value. And so holders who buy the shares at net asset value participate in the movement of the asset over that first year that they own it and then stand to capture any premium that does or does not exist um, once they are past their one year mark and are able to sell publicly. And so what we're doing, we hope, is emulating the business model of probably some of you are in the room, iShares, Wisdom Tree, Vanguard, Vanek, um, where we're developing a whole family of products, um, developing asset bases, track records, audited financials, best practices for them, getting them to be publicly quoted, and then when the regulatory winds begin to blow in our favor, I'll be spending a lot more time with Doug Jonas and moving them to the New York Stock Exchange as, as bona fide ETFs. <laughs> Which we appreciate, and uh, you know, uh, the fact that we haven't been able to, to uh, actually build these products and put them on the exchange does not uh, represent how much work we're doing to try and actually make that happen. Uh, in fact, you know, one of the, the key items in that letter was the ability to know what all those prices were publicly and where that data lies. And so part of our company uh, is now publishing a daily index that actually tracks, I think it's about six currencies across 15 different uh, currency exchanges, cryptocurrencies. Uh, and that's a feed that people can actually subscribe to. So we're actually trying to solve some of those problems. Um, I, you know, we always try and prepare for these, but we knew that this one would be dynamic. And I'd asked these gentlemen on the way in about news to, that I read about today. Some of you may or may not have seen it. The SEC built a uh, fake website called Harvey Coins. If anyone, is any, can I, anyone know about this? Just nod, some, some nods, okay. Uh, they published it. Has anyone here invested in an ICO? Don't be shy. Okay. Does so everyone know ICO, what an ICO is? Why don't you start there? Let's start there and then we'll talk about Harvey. Okay. So an ICO or initial coin offering is this new decentralized way to do an asset raise. Rather than a traditional IPO going to Doug and, and the team at NYC and saying, hey, we're a private company, we're now ready to go public and do an offering and register shares and put them out onto a stock market. An ICO is a way to give individuals and entities the ability to participate in a project or in a company by contributing some form of a digital currency, usually Ethereum tokens, in exchange for a token um, that's almost like a promissory note um, that will have some value based on the project that you're investing in. And so by and large, and there's been thousands of these that have taken place, this allows 
individuals who are building these projects and companies to kind of A, circumvent the traditional IPO process, but simultaneously circumvent the traditional venture capital process. Instead of going to 10 VCs and raising a round, you can put your project out on the internet and literally have tens if not hundreds of thousands of individuals and entities participate in your project and contribute value to it. And so it has brought about this idea that the capital formation process should be far faster and involve a lot more people and not only be reserved for the investment banks that underwrite the hot IPO of the year or the Andreessen Horowitz and Union Square Venture, you know, hot VC firms that get access to deals. Um, largely, the SEC has come down on a lot of these projects, citing that they are raising assets in a way that does not conform to probably about 80 plus years of regulation that has been put in place as to how assets are raised in the United States and or from US investors. Um, and so the point that Doug was starting to make is that yesterday they released a website um, that was meant to be a farce, but it was trying to become an example of, of what to look for because a lot of these ICOs are in fact scams and to look for those kind of key words and give investors a website as a gut check as to whether or not the project that they may be evaluating is in fact a scam or is in fact something that's real. So the, so it, so the SEC builds this site uh, effectively you know, showing you the way in which a promoter might try and promote something that's illegitimate, uh, allows you to click through and then says basically takes you to a page and, and maybe it's still available, you can play with it uh, tonight or tomorrow. Uh, that says, hey, by the way, if you had fallen for this, you would have fallen for a scam. And, and so the SEC has been very, very clear, particularly Jay Clayton, uh, about his concern around ICOs and uh, the ability that investors might be taken advantage of. Maybe, you know, I'll come to you, Jan, if, if, if it's okay. Uh, you can answer one or two questions for me. One, do you think that the SEC going through all this is actually good or bad for the industry? You could take that question if you'd like. Uh, and if you, don't, if you don't like that question, I, I wanted to, to instead maybe ask you, as someone who is uh, in, you know, entrusted with individual money, whether it be at the retailer or uh, advisor or institutional level, um, are you looking at ICOs and saying, hey, that might be a spot that we as a, as a fiduciary of investors might be looking to invest in the future? I'll, I'll give you either, either one. Well, again, you know, I look at everything from an investor perspective. I think most of the ICOs and, and a lot of what Michael talking about, what his firm does, is basically venture capital investing. And it was funny, I was talking to an experienced venture capital investor, you know, who basically said, I'm not really sure there's any value in venture capital investing because at the end of the day, you know, you're hoping that one project works and, and nine don't. Um, and, you know, my overall returns are basically that of the S&P. But... Venture capital funds are really appropriate for the people that can you know, spend the time studying them and they're really for accredited investors. So it's a very narrow group of people that should be doing this activity because you really have to do a lot of research around it. So that's really kind of my point. I think that what the SEC is, sure, it's easy to make fun of the ICOs. I think what they're trying to do is also establish that probably some of the biggest coins, Ethereum and Ripple, to name two, are securities and they're gonna try to ease them into the regulatory structure is how I interpret what they're doing. And they think they also need to ease Coinbase and some of these other exchanges and have them be re regulated at the end. And what they're trying to not do is break the whole system while they do this. So they're taking a very kind of methodical approach, but that's kind of where they're going. And when they get there, then they'll allow ETFs. 
Yeah, and I would, I would just add, this is another example of innovation. You know, we hear banking the unbanked, that's an ESG application. Um, we hear about kind of maybe raise, fundraising and rewriting the rules there. Um, it's very possible that this conference 10 years from now might be a token conference because this type of technology, as my partner Mike Venuto over there from Toroso, who's the portfolio manager of our ETF, raise your hand real quick, Mike, has uh, written about that ETFs and some of these uh, wrapper vehicles, these 40 Act, could potentially even be disrupted into tokens and reduce some of the friction around the 40 Act structure. And, and indeed, you know, Doug might be listing a bunch of token type securities and maybe some of the ETF or the, or the closed end funds will, will convert to this. This is a very disruptive kind of technology blockchain in general and some of the things that are doing uh, are happening in terms of tokens, crypto assets, and really securitizing um, uh, investments or currencies in a different way. So it's going to be interesting to see what the future holds, even for the ETF and the closed-end fund industry. So we, we still have a few minutes. I don't want to panic anyone, but are, are there people holding on to questions desperately? Okay, there's a couple. Why don't, if it's okay with the panelists, we're going to field a few, and then we'll come back to some of the ones that, that uh, I came up with. Do you want to shout it, and then I'll repeat it? Oh, we have a microphone. Better. I want to thank the panel very, very much for removing a lot of fog and dissatisfaction with cryptocurrencies and doubts. Because at one time, Jamie Dimon, the chief from JP Morgan, had called it a bogus product. But anyway, I'm very happy to hear about the ETFs on crypto. Here is my special situation. Coinbase. How many of you have heard on the panel, accounts have been hacked? We read it in Wall Street Journal. Is that true? So uh, hacked at Coinbase? Yes, Coinbase accounts have been hacked. So we're, we're I've been reading it in the, in, the, in the Wall Street Journal. So we're a seed investor in Coinbase. I have never heard of a Coinbase hack um, ever happening. Um, what you may be referring to is a probe that the IRS had into gaining access to some customer accounts at Coinbase to ensure users were paying taxes on gains they had? Okay, it's nothing of that sort. Okay. It is straight away, you go into Coinbase, you get the app, and you go through the questionnaire, and then you put the money from your bank account or your credit card. I did it from my bank account in Citibank. The money was moved in, I bought Ethereum, then I bought Bitcoin, this is my real case. Today, my account is frozen. It's five months into it, no resolution. Okay, I uh, apologize if none there, of us are from there, Coinbase. I but know, this is not the panel, but well, yeah. I want to send some shockwaves yeah. to this house, this audience, that this is a personal experience by somebody who is a financial advisor with 20 years at Merrill Lynch, and I invested my own money, and this is what I'm experiencing. Is there a grievance redressal procedure? That is the reason for my my raising my hand, fair, is fair there enough. a grievance redressal procedure? Coinbase is not helping. Yep. So uh, let me let me change the question slightly, I, because obviously all of us, you know, apologize for anyone who has trouble with investment uh, accounts anywhere. Um, but I want to rephrase the question a little bit because I think he's hitting on something important, which is the idea of custodianship, right? And it's something we hear about. I know other conferences have talked a lot about the importance of custody. What are we seeing in the world of 
custody, whether it be for Bitcoin or Ether, or really any cryptocurrency, and what are some of the, the changes, I guess, especially you guys have been in this industry a while, um, that we're seeing in the world of custody safety? Anyone want to grab that? Look, I mean, I think what happened is that you, this, this uh, you know, maybe everyone foresaw it, but I think a lot of these exchanges experienced growth that was way beyond their ability to, to, uh, to deal with all the customers they were getting. And that was clearly true in November and December of last year. I'm not excusing it. And I don't know, there's a lot of breakage. And there's fundamental conflicts of interest with some of those exchanges. Like, are they looking out for their individual investors? Are they also operating an exchange? In the traditional world, a lot of these uh, firms have different licenses and different responsibilities to protect from these conflicts of interest. And I said before, this is the year, I think, where we got to start straightening some of this out in the, in the crypto world, whether they like it or not. And some of you have visited custody facilities, right? Yes. I, I was wondering if you could maybe share some of the experience around what it look, what it actually looks like to be at a custody facility for a cryptocurrency. Yeah, sure. So I'm going to just paint a slightly different picture um, from, from what Jan said. There are some of the world's brightest minds building digital asset custody solutions. Um, some of these are companies like Zappo, XAPO, Ledger, BitGo. Um, there's a new company called Volt, Digital Asset Custody Solutions. Um, there is now a, a race for land grab between these new, very well-funded, very intelligent entrepreneurs to make sure that they stay in front of the demand, insatiable demand, for depositing these assets in a safe and robust way. And they are racing against the Fidelities, the State Streets, and the BNY Mellons of the world. Um, these are firms that are forced now, forced to have to pay attention to this asset class and are needing to develop solutions. It has long been my hypothesis that the BNY Mellons and State Streets of the world would be acquiring these digital currency custodial solutions, um, but it actually looks like many of them are actually starting to develop some of their own technologies. And so there will be a race between the incumbents and the newbies um, for who becomes known as that brinks of the Bitcoin ecosystem or as you know that BNY Mellon of the digital currency ecosystem. Jan does bring up an important point though, which is that there is no shortage of digital currency exchanges and order books globally. And you have to think about what an exchange does as a business. It's in the business of liquidity. It is not in the business of custody. And being in the business of liquidity means that it's giving its users very quick access to its accounts and to its assets so that they can trade. On the other hand, a custodial solution and a company that's entirely focused on that, their business is protecting their customers' assets. And so there are no shortage of companies who are exchanges and have not taken the custody aspect of their business seriously enough that have experienced hacks and thefts, and those are the exchanges that are getting weeded out of this ecosystem. And, and I'll, I'll note, when we say exchange, we're not talking about regulated exchanges like the New York Stock Exchange, uh, but just rather a, a facilitator of liquidity ac across the Bitcoins. Did you? I just add one point to, to Michael and just say uh, these cryptocurrencies, a massive amount of market cap, and none of them have been hacked yet, the actual cryptocurrencies. We have seen some fly-by-night exchanges that have been hacked. To my knowledge, Coinbase wasn't one of them. So it is important, I think, to find out who your custodian is if you're going to transact and try to go with the best in class because there is vulnerability there. Um, but again, we have not seen vulnerability in the actual cryptocurrencies. Right. Like a, a Chase branch could get robbed, right? But that doesn't mean the U.S. 
dollar is fundamentally flawed. A digital currency exchange could get a hacking or a theft. It has nothing to do with Bitcoin's overall security. Okay, so I guess I'm going to be the biggest doubter on the panel here. And I just got, you know, like blockchain's not going to cure all the ills in the world. And if you enact today operationally uh, in the crypto world, there is significant operational risk. And, you know, don't think there's not. Even if you deal with Coinbase, I don't care how many times it's been downloaded from, from Apple, and I'm, I love the company, I admire it, but I'm saying you have counterparty risk there with the crypto that you hold there. Your cash may be in a bank account that's regulated, but your crypto is, is not. So now, Michael and I may have different opinions, and I hope everyone in the room has different opinions about what that operational risk is, but it exists. I don't care how smart the people are you know, that wrote the code. And we own a couple of the ex exchange companies in our ETF and just had a portfolio management team. We're active in terms of portfolio management. Just come back from Iceland and visit a facility and inspect that. So we do think that due diligence is important. So I want to I thank my guests, uh, Jan, Matt, Michael, Christian, all clearly experts in this space. They will be around for a bit if you have follow-up questions. I saw some other people giving me the sign for questions, but I apologize. We're out of time. Please give them a round of applause for me. Thank you.